I thought if there was one thing that I could focus on, it would be psychedelic literacy. That if we could pull one lever that would help us to address and adapt to our current context and situation, it would be um, amplifying the, the power of psychedelics to not only heal, but transform our relationship with our environment. And in that, help us to create a new paradigm Then instead of being rooted in separation, extractiveness, you know, um, uh, argumentative divisiveness. Instead, it's rooted in interconnectedness. This is Mind Rolling. I'm Raghu with my buddy Gauguin, who's uh, done a couple of things with me in the recent times. And we got Paul Austin. Paul, welcome to the Thank show. You. Yeah, it's, we it's were just be here. we were just playing around because um, I didn't submit a, a list of questions. <laughs> to, someone just said that to me uh, to be on their podcast. Really, I haven't ever done that. Um, so we're just we're just winging it, but it's not that difficult because uh, Paul has a wonderful book called Mastering Microdose, and we're going to talk about that and psychedelics and and the culture uh, around it. And uh, we met up at Maps, uh, I guess it's a few weeks or a month ago uh, in Denver, which is the organization that's been doing a lot of the research work to prove how the efficacy of uh, psychedelics in general. Well, particularly MDMA and psilocybin with uh, PTSD and in use in other therapies, uh, including death and dying and addiction. So, yeah. Well, and, and just to add into that, that you know, the unplanned uh, podcast with just <laughs> us, us yeah. uh, menage a trois here, uh, you know, when Paul and I first met, actually, was a few years ago, and talk about a chaotic podcast, I think we had, what, like, nine different uh, uh, men from the psychedelic world that we came together and did something called Entrepedelics. <laughs> um, Paul, can I talk a little bit about what that that little retreat we did you want to- in in Boulder Creek in the the Santa Cruz mountains I would I would love to just that that was five years ago last month and we had it was 2018 July 2018 and we had quite a crew Michael Costuros who is an executive coach who has been leading entrepreneurs in ayahuasca retreats my good buddy Tim Seku who uh, has led over 20 ayahuasca retreats through a through a company called One Heart. Tommy Tommy Lorsch, who's an Argentinian art entrepreneur in the digital marketing space, who's become an investor. Omi, uh, who I think you know or knew quite well, and myself and you. Was there anyone else that was present with us? Uh... No, that sounds about right. And and we definitely did not have a list of questions. Um, no. we, it was kind of podcast soup about the nexus of psychedelics and entrepreneurs and thinking oh, about really? how wow. we can, I mean, because yeah. we talk a lot here about, you know, the potential of psychedelics to, uh, you know, move to more of a shared vantage point, build, you know, compassion, um, integrate that into our lives to be better humans. It was really interesting to focus on entrepreneurs and leadership and how we can be more conscious leaders and lead more, you know, compassionately, uh, build more conscious companies, um, and, and utilize psychedelics both. I mean, Paul representing more of the microdosing side of that, probably myself and some others representing a little bit more of the uh, journey work or or her- more heroic or threshold doses to to have breakthroughs. I love what you all call it, more heroic. And I think back to when, you know, late 60s, and I go, we weren't thinking anything. What do you got? Pop. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> we had no idea. And, you know, and the mic, in terms of uh, LSD, I mean, the, those doses were hundreds of mic micrograms, whereas yeah, not quite that these days. Um, so yeah, well, there was, was no a such, heroic time. No such thing as microdosing, right? So even oh, this no. concept of macrodosing, microdosing, yeah, not existent back in the day. It was just you take a thumbprint of acid and see what yeah. happens. Yeah, right. <laughs> Fun time. <laughs> hey, Paul, why don't you just talk about you know where you come from and 
you know, and just in reading your story a little bit, I think it's really uh, efficacious for you to talk about your uh, Calvinistic upbringing, shall you say. Yeah, West Michigan, just to root a little bit, the the city of Grand Rapids, I, I grew uh-huh. up outside of, uh, a city of about 200,000 people. Kellogg's, and right? I, Kellogg is in Battle Creek, yeah, about an oh, hour Battle south Creek. of there. Yeah. So, so Grand Rapids is best known for furniture. So Steelcase, Herman Miller, Hayworth became oh, the furniture wow. capital of the world in the 19th century because of all the timber that was coming down oh, from the... Mm-hmm. The Upper Peninsula. And, you know, the Dutch, all of the poor Dutch peasants settled Michigan and Iowa. And so I was really raised in a in a religious Calvinist environment. Now, both of my parents were quite progressive, quite liberal. So it wasn't what, I, what, what a lot of folks would consider to be conservative or fundamentalist. But it was very much, you know, morality, good and bad, was determined by mm. what we were learning in church. And I was at church for four hours every Sunday. And then when I was 16, my parents found out that I had been smoking weed. And so my dad sits me down after church one Sunday. My dad's a beautiful man, very kind, kind man. Sits me down and says, I haven't been this disappointed <laughs> since my brother passed away in a car accident 25 years prior, right? And so the conditioning that, you know, had contextualized my parents' relationship with cannabis, with illegal drugs, you know, really was the just say no era. And yet at that time, I felt it doesn't feel like I'm doing anything wrong. Like I'm having very, you know, novel, fun, enlightening experiences, even with cannabis at that point in time. And so that just continued to set me down this journey of rebellion, right? Like, my parents feel this way. I feel that way. And a few years later, I, with that same friend who introduced me to cannabis, found my way to uh, psilocybin and LSD. And at the age of 19, just had these beautiful, awe-inspiring uh, experiences with, with psychedelics. And at that point, I had I'd become quite atheist. So I was raised very religious, never really bought into it, became quite atheist. And then I started to work with psychedelics intentionally at the age of 19 and 20. And that reopened for me this, this beauty of, of what spirituality is. And it gave me some insight as to how the church came about, how Christianity came about, but also helped me to understand that it had become dogmatic, that it had become ossified, that it had become too rigid and structured. And so that just set me down a path of you know, I think the the core thing, if I could communicate one, it's like what came about from that was this relationship and connection to nature. Mm-hmm. And that the more we take care of the environment, it takes care of us. And as a man who was really attempting to clarify, what is it that I want to do with my life? What is my mission? I thought if there was one thing that I could focus on, it would be psychedelic literacy. That if we could pull one lever that would help us to a- address and adapt to our current context and situation... It would be um, amplifying the the power of psychedelics to not only heal, but transform our relationship with our environment. And in that, help us to create a new paradigm Then, instead of being rooted in separation, extractiveness, you know, um, uh, argumentative divisiveness, instead it's rooted in interconnectedness, uh, the concept of things as, as, as together. And, and so that just, you know, really has informed my entire, I would say, life path and career with third mm. wave and psychedelics and all of that. Right. Amazing. It's great mm. to get that early on, right? Uh, that did happen to me, and I know it happened to Gagan as well. Really knew what it was we should be doing here and just uh, got into that flow. Um, so you do talk in, uh, about the 60s and early 70s. You know, when the culture really shifted. And, of course, psychedelics had a, a huge part of that, as well as the people like Ram Dass and Alan Watts bringing over to a very large audience these incredible uh, teachings that came from the mystic tra- traditions of the East. We've had a lot of blowback, though, about how we supposedly... I don't know what the right word is, related to, like I just said, hey, we weren't thinking anything. I mean, until, uh, you know, Leary and Alpert came up with set and setting, you know, it was, hey, somebody had something. I mean, I'd be 
you know, in uh, the carousel ballroom. I don't know how many people. Do you guys know what the carousel ballroom was in San Francisco in 1966, yeah. 7, 8, and all? No. Yeah, I, was, I was born 15 years later. So oh, I see. All probably <laughs> after that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, you know Bill Graham. We probably know sure. who he is. Yeah. Who yeah. was, unfortunately. And uh, so he he would be putting on. He he got this auto dealership. I forget him. Which it's, it's the street that you go through downtown to get over the Golden Gate. I can't remember. I can't remember what the name of it is. But it it was up. He took over the whole building, and so it had this huge, huge space. And he it eventually became Winterland, uh, mm. and he moved it elsewhere. But at that time, it was called the Carousel Ballroom, and uh, I think he was involved with the Dead in the Airplane as well in it. Mm. We used to go down there every weekend. We never looked to see who was playing. It was just a ritual. We would go down there every weekend. You know, and Janice and uh, The Who. Day, one night I went there, The Who, who was debuting. Uh, Tommy, you know, had come over from England. to You know, just crazy shit like that. But what was going on there in terms of psychedelics was literally, hey, here you go, tongue out. And that was a reality for us. And that until, you know, we got a little bit more um, acquainted with it, we started to understand that it was much more efficacious if we were going to do this within some kind of structure set and setting that allows us, allowed us to take advantage of its insights, basically. Although we did not call it that then. And then fast forward to... Um, really understanding it when i went to india when ramdas went back the second time and he gave our guru neem karoli baba if you read be here now the man in the blanket mm. he put you know some white lightning on and gave him some, a few tabs of white lightning which i later found out were really are about seven eight hundred micrograms i found out it in oh in gosh. uh yeah who's who knew that the guy that got busted, who was giving a talk at MAPS in Denver, were you there, Gagan? He, he had just gotten out of jail. God, I can't remember his name. He was a major, major distributor of acid. Leonard Pickett? Wow. Yeah. Yeah, Leonard. Oh, Leonard. Leonard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, he actually knew what that dose of white lightning was. And it was really? six. Yeah, he said six. I'm thinking, shit, Maharaji took three or four of those at once. <laughs> Nothing happened, but he said, look, this is great for beginners. It allows you to have what he called darsh, uh, be in the presence of Christ for a few hours, but then you got to leave. Ultimately, better to love everyone, feed them. That'll get you where you want to go. Uh, but it gave us the idea of how this is, had opened up a whole doorway in fact, and Ramdas said this many times, I would not have been able to grok or to completely have an affinity for any anything of what this human was that was beyond, you know, polarity and duality. We had never experienced anything like that without acid, without psychedelics. So, yes, we were a little messy back then, but to but it gets dismissed in a way that I find. Um, Short thinking. What do you all think about that in terms of what went on there and the experimentations we did and what's going on now? Well, I'd let Paul jump in on that because that's really, I think, why he started his company and, and what he's done. I mean, I'd, I'd love for you to talk about what, you know, third wave and the reason, like, because I don't think a lot of this um, audience maybe hasn't even heard why the name, which I love, uh, but also how you've cleaned up that messiness. It would be great to hear from you. Yeah, there's there's a lot of threads here to, to pull on. So we could probably dedicate an entire podcast conversation to just impressions of the 60s lessons learned that have been integrated, <laughs> you know, from, mm. from, from the 60s, what went super well and, and what didn't go so well. And, you know, how do we discern truth from, from fiction? even because a lot of the framing around the sixties is also rooted in propaganda from a government that has, you know, been against peace and against consciousness and against many other things. So there's a lot of uh, sort of chaos 
and confusion in that. And I, you know, whenever I reflect on this, there's a, there's a few things that that come up. One is when we look at our lineage from a Western lens with these plant medicines, in many ways, we've been cut off from psychedelics for 1700 years, right? Uh, ever since the Eleusinian mysteries were, were um, eliminated by the, the Christian church when it became the official religion of the Roman Empire. So for over 1700 years, we really haven't had an integrated ritual where we uh, who come from a more Western background have intentionally worked with psychedelics. So of course, when LSD comes on the scene in the 50s and 60s, there's this um, remembrance of how incredible and how beautiful these experiences can be. But also there's no lineage, there's no tradition, there's no ritual, there's no sort of cultural skill set to navigate and deal with the chaos that can come forth. And that's, of course, why in, in the Eleusinian Mysteries, uh, you know, it was once or twice or three times in your life, you could not speak to anyone about mm. that experience. It was reserved for the people who were quote unquote ready for it, who could navigate and handle the intensity of what that experience brought up. And, um, and it was in some ways known about and integrated into wider culture. Whereas in the sixties, LSD comes on the scene. It's a semi-synthetic, it's very potent, you know, it's in the midst and the context of the Vietnam war of the race riots of a lot of other things that are happening. And so even when um, there was this guy, Ehrlichman, who was asked why they made certain drugs illegal. And, you know, he said, we knew we knew these drugs weren't harmful. You know, speaking about LSD and cannabis in particular, um, but we could not make, you know, being a hippie illegal. We couldn't make protesting being illegal, but we could make the drugs that the hippies and the protesters were using mm -hmm. illegal. John right? And so, <laughs> exactly. So there's definitely that element and that lens. And I think another aspect here is, um, you know, we have certain technology uh, these days, which in, in many ways has been catalyzed through psychedelics, right? There's a really interesting relationship between psychedelics and the computer revolution, you know, and a lot of the early pioneers in the computer revolution with the internet, with the computer. I mean, Steve Jobs is well known, but uh, there were many others who also worked with psychedelics. Uh, Stuart Brand is another one yeah. who has talked about this. And right. So that relationship, it's almost like the internet was invented as a, as a result of psychedelics. After we had these experiences with psychedelics feeling so interconnected, the question was, how do we build an external technology that, that can actually facilitate this for us? on a widespread basis. And so I think we're much better equipped now because of the way that education has been democratized. I mean, this is why I started Third Wave in the first place was back in the day, Third Wave started in 2015, whenever I would type in a psychedelic LSD or mushrooms or whatever it is, it would always be the sort of uh, anti-drug propaganda websites that would be at the top, <laughs> you know? And I was like, how do we actually fix this through SEO by giving factual objective uh, information about these different about these different substances, and and then the way that microdosing I understood for it to fit in, and this is where Jim Fadiman talking about microdosing amplifying it, I think was so so beautiful. There, it's my belief, and Terrence McKenna thought this as well, and Timothy Leary and and many others, that these high doses of psychedelics may only be best for the hardcore psychonauts, and that lower doses may be ideal for, let's say, a mainstream population that just wants to feel a little bit better. They want to have a little bit more energy. They want to you know, have the relationships be a little bit better, but they don't necessarily need a paradigm-shifting experience to happen. And so I think the very fact that now there's this middle way, I almost see microdosing as a middle way, mm. where you don't have to do five grams of mushrooms to have an experience with psychedelics. You can do these lower doses and still benefit from it. And I think that that shift in perspective is allowing a lot of people to engage with psychedelics that previously would have been too intimidated or too scared because of some of these horror stories that came out of the, the 50s and 60s. Yeah. Okay, don't blame us so much, though. I mean, we were just hippies. <laughs> right. 
But look what happened, you know, and, and many people coming out of that culture, Stuart Brand, as you just mentioned, being one of them, you know, and what enormous contributions, jobs and all of it. Uh, huge. Yeah, it's just amazing. And, and even in our little group that happened over there with Ramdas, which is really only a few hundred people, which when I look back at that, that's extraordinary in and of itself. Um, you know, many of those people went on to really make, you know, significant contributions in one way or another. So, uh, well, and, and now we have elders, right? We have elders who are around in the 50s and 60s mm-hmm. and 70s. Whereas when this first came on the scene, and the you know, we didn't have any elders, we had no lineage, we had no yeah. people to help kind of usher this in. And so it's almost like that had to happen for us to be where we are today. There's almost, there's, you know, a divine perfection in the way that this has flowed. And um, even you know, there there was so much beauty that came from that and lessons learned that now have been integrated and that are allowing for the current psychedelic renaissance to really, I think, um, take form. Yeah. And I, I love the connection to indigenous culture right. and what that really means and how we need to look to that, uh, those cultures in, in relation to what we're what's going on uh, obviously with our ecosystem with our polarity with with all of it uh, and and I love how you point out some of the really ancient stuff I mean some of it was uh, like 35,000 years ago there was something found that showed the use of uh, ethnogens entheogens yeah yeah the stoned ape theory from from Terence McKenna that, that our ancestors oh, that, yeah. Our ancestors ate mushrooms on the on the savanna grasslands of Africa, but even even in more modern times, right? Like we think of ayahuasca, or we think of wachuma, or we think of uh, iboga, right? Many of these these indigenous plant medicines have rooting and lineage, but what we often forget is even with something like LSD, it has a rooting, it has a lineage. LSD is made from ergot a fungus that grows on rye bread. Ergot is the same substance that was found in kukion, which is the beverage that the ancient Greeks drank in the Eleusinian mystery. So I think it's also important to honor that we as a Western populace have lost our indigenous rootings. We've been completely uprooted from it because of Christianity for the Mm. most part, and before that, the Romans. And so a lot of what psychedelics are bringing us back into it's a remembrance of that wild primal animist shamanic um mm. aspect of ourselves that has been conditioned out of us that you know we've lost touch with in this you know focus on progress and technology and you know all these these sort of like i think uh immature leanings of a, of a, of a culture that's still quite young and trying yeah, to figure itself yeah. out. More commonly known as greed and power. Exactly. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing too, when you think about, I mean, at that maps conference, Stamets was talking about just getting back from Egypt and seeing, you know, mm. uh, mushrooms in the hieroglyphs um, was a, was a fascinating mm. talk that he gave. I mean, the cows used to go down to the, neither blue lotus there they used to go and eat those and of course the mushrooms were growing out of the dung and cleopatra was then uh high society egypt was eating those mushrooms and then sharing it with you know her lovers mark antony and others from other high society uh that around that time it's uh, um it was fascinating but what really when when you start talking about the there's the indigenous uh humans that were here in that first wave but there's also just the original mother. I mean, there is the intelligence of planet of, of this planet uh, in just it's all she wants to do is birth life and take care of it. And and, and so some of this plant medicine, um, which has been, you know, ostracized from society for so long, it's 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 been here for us to help us remember you know, to help us, uh, take care of each other, um, to get out of what, you know, uh, I think, uh, Raghu, I forget who even coined it now, but that movie of me, uh, and, and move towards the more interconnected view, uh, and, and more of a shared vantage point. I mean, that's, 
that's the gift of, of, for instance, psilocybin or, you know, what, what I've seen in my own experience is, uh, and, and it's why I'm, I'm kind of drawn more towards the, the plants that you spoke to, you know, uh, wachuma, ayahuasca, um, cannabis, psilocybin. Uh, but I'm curious in your now in this third wave, cause I know you've really done a lot of work around specifically LSD microdosing. Mm-hmm. I'm curious how you pull those apart and why you've been drawn to LSD microdosing, uh, you know, whereas others, you know, are kind of speaking a lot to ketamine or psilocybin or others. MDMA. I mean, part of, part of that is my own personal experiences. You know, the, the most profound experiences that I had at a young age were on higher doses of LSD in nature in the woods, mm. outside with small groups of friends, mm. right? So there was definitely an element of, of my own personal experiences have been so influential in terms of how I, how I move in the world and, and why I love it. And that's because I, I tend to be a more melancholic person. And so LSD is a more uplifting, it's, a, it's, it's, it's an antidepressant in many ways. It has this you know, sense of bliss that comes from it. And that's because LSD is more dopaminergenic. There's more dopamine with LSD than something with, with psilocybin. I think another reason I focus so much on LSD um, was because it's the most controversial, right? Uh, it has the most stigma uh, associated with it. And so if we, can get, if we can get culture to reframe the relationship with LSD, then things like psilocybin, ayahuasca, wachuma, that's no problem. Because LSD is really the one that holds the most cultural baggage and that holds the most Mm. stigma. So it's Mm. like, uh, you know, it's like, take on the biggest one first, go for that, and then help to reframe it by by educating people that you don't need to do a thumbprint of LSD in order to, to benefit from it. You can just take a tiny, tiny dose that's barely perceptible. And so it just flips the perception totally on its head. And then I think the other element for me has been the audience that I'm speaking to and that I really want to communicate to are entrepreneurs, a, you know, high performers, creatives. And I find generally that psilocybin, now ayahuasca is interesting and that, I feel like it's a whole other thing. So psilocybin versus LSD, just to keep it a little contained now, psilocybin is more serotonergic. There's more serotonin. So serotonin is tied to contentment. And I find that mm-hmm. a lot of people who are doing inner work uh, trauma healing, uh, you know, healing healing aspects of of their body and their past. Psilocybin can be really, really good for that. But for those who are really looking for like cognitive improvement, that are looking for creativity, that are looking to access flow more, uh, a little bit more easy, I find LSD to be a better tool specifically for that. And so, since I'm speaking to that audience, um, I mean, I'm speaking to a lot of people, but I, I love that audience in particular. It felt like LSD was a good neurochemical key for precisely what it is that they were interested in. And it also, just to come back to the point that I was making before, it has the most lineage for us as a Western people, right? Psilocybin is uh, historically with the Mazatec. I mean, it's all over the place. As you mentioned, Paul Stamets in Egypt, but the Mazatec are known. Ayahuasca is very South American. Wachuma is very South American. Peyote is from the native people here in, in, in the, uh, the United States. Iboga is Gabon. But LSD, there's a particular relationship that we as a Western culture have. And it's it's so sad and unfortunate that, be, that it became tainted in the 60s, largely because of misunderstandings. And so I think healing that relationship with a medicine that we've known for four, 5,000 years as a Western people is going to help relieve this amnesia that we, that we struggle with. Because I think a lot of our challenges, it's, it is the sense we, we've, we've forgotten. We've forgotten who we are. We've forgotten where we come from. We've forgotten why we are here. And what often psychedelics do is they help us to remember that. Mm-hmm. And that, as, as Raghu was saying, that it can be the opening on the path. It was for Ram Dass. It was for Jack Cornfield. It was for, uh, you know, Timothy Lee. It was for so many people. And yeah. as we all know, right, it's one thing to see the mountaintop. It's another thing to every day walk towards that mountaintop. And that's where, of course, meditation and breath work and yoga yeah. and all these other practices are just as, if not more important, um, as, as psychedelics, as ayahuasca, yeah. wachuma, mushrooms. Yeah. 
Um, uh, and I want to talk more about that uh, in terms of uh, this is something Gauguin and I have been working on on behalf of Love Server Member Foundation. In terms of representing, like uh, we did at MAPS, we did a couple of uh, different uh, presentations. They were not about uh, anything to whatsoever to do with therapy, PTSD, and how it, you know, which was the centerpiece, of course, of what MAPS is doing. It was more about how to represent what Ramdas how he used to frame it. And uh, basically that was our connectivity back then. But you just triggered something in me when you said healing relationships, basically, uh, in in a few less words. Um, I had an experience that, you know, I've told this many times on the podcast but since this is new probably to you it'd be interesting when i i went to india and of course i was with neem karoli baba and then my father wrote and said i want to come over i'd written him this you can't believe what's happening to us and he came over to india which blew my mind because i had a horrible relationship with him we fought all the time not you know i knew there was love but but basically we just uh, did not get along Anyhow, the bottom line is, uh, after some time, uh, Neem Karoli Baba looked at me and said, did you give your father the medicine? I said, yeah. He had a cold. I gave him some aspirin. He said, the yogi medicine Ramdas gave me? I went, acid? And my father went, LSD? <laughs> and he said, take care of your father while he's in India and meet me in a couple of weeks in this other city. And we went to where uh, Benares, which is the uh, city in India where people have been going to die for thousands and thousands of years on the banks of the Ganges River. And we were in a houseboat right downstream from there, and a friend of mine gave me a hit of acid. <laughs> he actually took it. And he, because he was a World War II uh, bomber pilot, he, who, most of his squadron died, he, he was so ptsd it wasn't funny. I mean, and, and of course, I was a bit of the recipient of this in my earlier days. Anyhow, he took and had a death trip from one end to the other. People dead in the streets, putting money to give him enough wood and animal. I mean, it was just incredible. He, it, we came again to see Neem Karoli Baba, who never said a word about it uh, because there was no rational kind of stuff going on, but told him a whole thing about that nobody else could know about a horse farm and a horse that he saved uh, in Canada. And from that point on, we had a relationship. Previous to that, we didn't. So I am living proof of the healing capacity of, of this incredible substance. But now we have to get into, of course, you know, uh, talk about having someone there to be there for whatever it was that we needed. Me as an individual, I didn't take any in that moment, and my father... You know, of course, we had this extraordinary being, but, you know, there's a lot of trust. I just want to say, so people hear this kind of thing, especially this story of, you know, I I can't tell you how many people, I wish my father would take some acid, boy, we could get along, you know, well, it ain't that easy. And, And what it takes is, first of all, having yourself straightened out a little bit. And that has to happen with, and if you're using ethnogens, if you're using uh, acid or, or psilocybin or MDMA, whatever it is, have a trusted friend as part of this situation. Please, you know, don't even think about it uh, un- unless uh, that's uh, existent. Yeah, so, yeah, I had that in particular experience, which changed my life. And And even... A trusted friend is great. A trip sitter, someone who you yeah. know, someone who yeah. maybe you've known for some time. You know, I, I, uh, there are a lot of trained and certified therapists, practitioners, coaches. You know, and I think another interesting dynamic that's arisen in this third wave of psychedelics is, you know, do you have to be a psychotherapist in order to guide someone into their deepest sense of of being? And there are a lot of indigenous facilitators and, and practitioners who have no such credentials and yet have been doing this. And their parents and their parents' parents and their parents' parents' parents have been doing this for 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 a very long time. And I think what you've hit on, Raghu, is important. It's we don't necessarily need 
doctors and psychiatrists and clinic, clinical therapists and psychologists, they're helpful. Absolutely, they're helpful. But really what psychedelics are teaching us is the importance of presence, how to listen, how to slow down, right? They're helping to sort of take us out of this, this rigmarole, this hamster wheel of existence and see that another way of being is, is actually possible. And, and really what's required more than anything is just a loving, compassionate presence. Yeah, absolutely. Um, One billion percent. And yeah. Gagan, you know about this. I mean, you have so much experience with people uh, uh, in terms of journeying and uh, ceremonially and, and so on. It's just that, no? Yeah, no, I, absolutely. I mean, I, I, when, when you were talking about how this got stigma you know, through marketing. I mean, LSD, it's like, I was thinking about somewhere in high school when someone said, Oh, if you take more than seven hits, you're clinically insane. And I was like, (laughs) well, I'm no mathematician, but, uh, I think, uh, maybe insane 50 times over. Um, (laughs) so, uh, yeah, no, um, I, I am, I, I am curious because, I mean, this is your business now. I mean, th- this really uh, trip-sitting, as you put it, and, and training coaches how to be there uh, as people are kind of moving along on their journey. I'm interested at this cross-section of that with microdosing in particular. Um, so I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. Because I, I, I have heard a lot about, you know, when you're moving into those more threshold kind of doses. But in a microdosing capacity, I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit more about what that program's like. So about two years ago, I noticed that there were a lot of programs that were starting to come on the scene. And, and what you're speaking to are like practitioner programs for coaches, for clinicians, for therapists who want to help clients to prepare and integrate, right? There's some programs who also train guides, facilitators, but guiding an actual experience, it is a similar but not the same skill set as assessing, preparing, integrating for an experience. And what I noticed is that a lot of those programs were specifically for clinical indications, PTSD, depression, addiction, alcoholism, you know, very trauma-informed, mostly for clinical therapists or clinical psychologists. And yet the work that we had been doing for so long was really looking at not clinical healing, but transformation and the betterment of the well. And so I was like, how do we develop a training program that's for executive coaches, that's for health and relationship co- or health and wellness coaches, life and relationship coaches, and some clinicians who want to expand outside of the sick care model, uh, specifically mm-hmm. the fix it model. And as I was talking about this with a few friends, we landed on, you know, really looking at psychedelics as a skill, a skill that we as practitioners first have to learn ourselves. Um, So I think what's really important from an ethical and integrity perspective in the psychedelic space is anyone that you work with, let's say a guide, a therapist, a coach, should have walked that path themselves before they guide you down it. And that's because there's a lot of unknown and uncertainty when you're taking, you know, mushrooms or LSD or ayahuasca. And so we really rooted the training program and walk the walk. And then as you walk the walk, have support, have accountability, we have some frameworks, and then you'll be much better equipped to then help others walk that walk as well. And and so the frame that we put around it is psychedelics are a skill, and and, and there are really three key elements to that skill. The higher doses, how do we set up a really beneficial high-dose experience? Um, if that is aligned and, and, and what the client is looking for. The role of microdosing, sub-threshold, right? Low dosing, what's the role of that? And then contemplative practices like meditation and yoga. And how do those three together, how can a coach weave a client through those three elements for healing and for transformation? Mm. And so what we train our coaches in is understanding the broadest landscape possible. So it's not like we go deep into just psilocybin microdosing or go deep into just LSD microdosing. We have modules on safety and ethics. We have modules on the difference between a guide, a sitter, a therapist, and a shaman. We have modules on the difference, you know, the different medicines, ayahuasca versus psilocybin versus LSD. Um, And where we really focus a lot of our time and energy is what we call the practicum. Because I think theory is great, but we need less here and more here. 
right? And so for any training program, it's again, walk that walk. So we have a six-month practicum that we put all of our practitioners through, which teaches them how do you assess clients? How do you help clients prepare? How do you help them find the right experience, right? What Whether it's ketamine, whether it's a low dose of psilocybin, whether it's breath work, whether it's ayahuasca, how do you help them find that right experience for where they're at and what their intention is? How do you help them integrate after that experience? And what's the role specifically of microdosing in that integration? And so instead of just focusing explicitly only on the, the, the sub-threshold dose or the, the microdosing, we really have that broader landscape. We focus a lot on microdosing as a tool potentially for preparation and certainly as a tool for integration. But I do think that there's a lot of benefits that don't necessarily come from j- just sub-threshold experiences, right? There's, there's, there's an incredible amount of research on the value of a mystical experience, on the value of a high-dose experience. And I think what's important to emphasize is the quality of that experience is, is really determined by the quality of the facilitator, the practitioner, the center, how safe someone feels, if it's the right medicine for them, whether or not they're on any psychiatric medications. There's so many variables yeah. to navigate. And so also ensuring that all of our practitioners understand what are all these variables? And most importantly, what can you do? Meaning, what are you equipped and trained to facilitate? And what is out of your range? Because I think the, the biggest risk in this sort of third wave of psychedelics is the, the sort of case of the Instagram shaman who, who ends up facilitating 5-MeO-DMT for someone that really should not be doing this whatsoever. It creates a psychotic break. It re-traumatizes the individual. It's highly unethical. Um, so I think humility really has to be instrumental in, in, in any training program for practitioners. And of course, the greatest teacher for humility, at least in my life, has been love and mushrooms uh, and ayahuasca. I, I think mush, uh, Ram Das might agree with you there. Yeah, yeah. Um, he yeah, said, "Trust it. the mushrooms." Yeah, uh, right. The the uh, I'm I'm curious. Just one thread you hit on there that I'm I'm actually very interested in. Um, like Raghu said, we were doing a number of talks, and some of it was about how to integrate that spiritual experience that you may have on psychedelics into your day to day life to you know be a be a better. Uh, human, more compassionate human. So on the microdosing side of that, I'm, I, I'm curious about kind of the microdosing spirituality, you know, like the, that side of psychedelics, which is hard. It's not as tangible, you know, mm-hmm. as like the, um, yes, if you, uh, there, you're going to see these performance enhancements, uh, you know, around creativity or energy, uh, you're going to, you're, you know, we live in that age, right? Where it's, we're, we're, um, th- there's that performance enhancement side of microdosing and there's kind of the, uh, cumulative effect of, um, healing past trauma. Mm-hmm. But then there's this other part of psychedelics, which is the, the divine, you know, mm-hmm. the, the touching that divine experience. And I'm curious if that's also integrated in to, you know, these kind of microdosing programs, like how you touch on some of that. And I think that goes back to what we've talked a lot about, which is this indigenous rooting and lineage. And of course, what's central to indigenous practices with with plant medicines is ritual, ceremony, reverence, you know, recognizing and seeing the intelligence in the, the, the thing that we are working with. So Rather, you know, I think the the downside or the dark side of microdosing is it just becomes commodified like Prozac or Zoloft or Xanax, right? Hey, take this pill. You take it without giving it a second thought in the morning. See how it feels. You know, see you later. I think what what is is much what's critical is that there is there is space that's created. So let's say you're waking up in the morning. You're going to start your microdosing protocol. You know, you might hold. The microdose, you might say a prayer, you might have a, a, a ritual with it, you know, where you meditate with the microdose, you may set an intention uh, with it. So I think having some level of presence with that, 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 that tool, some level of intention, 
is is really is really qu- quite quite critical because you're not going to have the the big mystical experience, the big transcendence, the big aha, and you know, as I, I forget who said this, both of you will know this, you know, before enlightenment, you chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, you mm-hmm. chop wood, carry water. I think what microdosing does, it's after we have these transcendent experiences with high doses of psychedelics, it just makes it a little bit easier to chop wood and carry water on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, gratitude is easier to come by. You have a little bit more energy physiologically. Um you know, it just it just sort of helps to keep the windshield clean, so yeah. to say, of that of that spiritual self. Yeah, what's uh, main main uh, thing that happens in my own experience with it is more space is created to be less reactive to all of the incoming stuff that we deal with a billion times a day with people, incidents, God knows what it is. So, you know, that, that's very attractive. I, I want to go to the people who, the practitioners who have got to be walking the walk, as you say. Mm-hmm. Uh, how much time are they, uh, as part of the program, are they putting into uh, the practices that are, abs- in my mind, absolutely necessary uh, in terms of the integration of, of the insights from psychedelics, either... Even from, I don't mean it that way, microdosing, obviously there's, you know, the, the bigger boom happens when you take a, a, a regular dose of, of, of any of these. But how are these people led into that which they can disseminate to somebody else that there is an integration process that is not just, I mean, you even say it, it's not about getting high. It's about you know, integrating and Gagan talked about it being a better person, but uh, harnessing, you say it's tangible benefits in everyday life, vitality, connection, and creativity. That takes real uh, intention mm-hmm. to, and then there's many, many practices from mindfulness to meditation to mantra practices and breath. I mean, it can go on forever which is the beauty of, uh, of, of the potential of the spiritual path. But yeah, that integration is extremely important and it has to be uh, delivered from somebody who's got the experience, right? Are you work- How are you working with people that way? And so part of this is that, that person who comes in, what are, what are their practices already? Right. And so anyone who's coming into this past, almost everyone who's who's joining this training, you know, they've 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 been meditating for a year or two years or three years, or you know, they they're they they run a yoga studio or they've been a practitioner of yoga for five to seven years, or maybe they've, you know, been been doing Wim Hof breath work or transformational breath work. So for many of them, they already have established practices. Um, and so part of the container is a six-day intensive in Costa Rica. Oh, really? So we go down to a beautiful center called Brave Earth in Costa Rica. We have a six-day intensive. Uh, we, do, we do breath work. We do meditation. We do a high-dose psilocybin ceremony. We do what I call a hiker dose, take a low dose of mushrooms and go for a nature walk, a meditative nature walk. We have workshops. Uh, we do a temescal, a sweat lodge. So there's a lot of baking that we're doing at that intensive. We're making that a very intentional experience. And then, and then throughout the program, we ask everyone to have a practice. It could be a daily meditation practice combined with journaling that may be breath work, that may be yoga, whatever that practice is, something that is your anchor and is, is your rooting as you're moving throughout this. Because some folks, let's say, you know, we have a lot of executive coaches, those coaches you know, are going to have a slightly different lens and frame on what practice is ideal for their context, for their set and setting. Mm. Uh, it may be uh, journaling in the morning to clear the mind, to help them, you know, get present and ready for the clients that they're working with. A health and wellness coach, you know, their practice could be fasting once a week uh, in conjunction with some sort of movement every day and maybe a cold plunge and sauna as well. So it's really like, what is it that, it that that individual needs to help with the integration process? 
And how do we ensure there's accountability baked into the program itself with the other classmates? Because everyone is walking this path together. And so that that sort of collective accountability, I think, is instrumental to overall integration. And I think it's also why integration in modern times can be so difficult because we go down to uh, Costa Rica or Brazil, or, Mm. you know, we go and have a weekend retreat in Marin and then we come back to our normal everyday life and we're back in the same structure and the same set and setting that has caused all those triggers prior. It's, it's why even folks who have struggled with addiction a long time, you, know, you can take them out of that. They can go do something like Iboga, it heals that addiction. But if you put them right back in the same environment and context and set and setting, they're way more likely to slip back into that addiction. So yeah. I think part of the challenge is for integration, how do we actually create a new context, a new environment so that integration feels seamless? It doesn't feel like something we have to work at necessarily. And I think when I look at the larger vision of third wave, 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 years from now, It's how are we seeding this new paradigm that we touched on at the very beginning of interconnectedness? And how can we actually create new systems around business, politic, education, healthcare, the way that we live, that are actually in alignment with and representative of these deep uh, experiences that we have with with psychedelics? Mm. I think that uh, Ram Dass' main teaching, main thrust in the last years of his life in Maui was this concept of developing in the center of your being a relationship with loving awareness. I am, and you said, mm-hmm. I am loving awareness or just loving awareness, meaning you're getting out of that perspective that again mentioned about the movie of me uh, in your head, the story you tell, we tell ourselves, and you're getting into the center of your being, spiritual heart, whatever you want to call it, and breathing into a place where you are not sitting there in judgment, you are not in the crosshairs of polarity on a on our day to day basis, and that combined with uh, what Ramdas when he first came back from India called the witness, but it cannot be the witness from here. It has to be from the place where you're not in a judge mode, a judge and jury. And that loving awareness practice is, is crucial in my mind because then your perspective on, on everything, including the kind of work that you're talking about with, with psychedelics, either regular dose or microdose, without that kind of mindfulness and without a perspective that you're coming from in terms of your moment-to-moment life, then it's very, it would be difficult to imagine the engagement of going back and integrating from these experiences in a way that is going to affect all of the things you just meant, from business to politics to creative arts, all of it, without that change in perspective. Um, just my opinion on that. And it's almost, I think Ken Wilber mentioned this, it's how do we turn altered states into altered traits? There. And it feels like Love the that. frequency, the frequency that we experience in these these high dose experiences, is that oftentimes that frequency of love because it's the frequency of God, it's the frequency yeah. of Source. Yeah. And so having the capacity to cultivate that and be with that is it is I think the core of integration. It's rooting in love. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's what we're working on right now trying to you know bring that up because uh, i think you even said we're not we're talking about everybody has trauma there's no doubt about that we've all gone through it to one degree or another some more healthful in a more healthful way and some not and but what we're talking about is people being able to engage in this way who just want to get more familiar with who they are truly just starting there. So or people that are very dissatisfied with continuing in that story of me, just being so, you know, walking around with all that kind of self-motivation stuff and want to change that. Psychedelics can do a lot to, to, to completely transform that. It's just then how do we integrate it after the fact? Yeah, and with uh, with set setting, proper coaching, proper guide. I mean, I can't tell you, Raghu, how many people come up to me at the Ram Das retreats 
you know, asking you to ask. help them on. <laughs> well, just more so curious, like there's been fear. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's interesting. A lot of folks, even that were hippies back in, you know, I mean, my parents were, uh, they graduated high school in 69, you know? Um, and, uh, uh you know, I, I mean, I think a lot of folks maybe played around a little bit then, and then the, the stigma took hold and all of a sudden it became this bad drugs, you know, it's cocaine, heroin, psychedelics, all of it wrapped up in the same. And now it, it's interesting to see, you know, even very rational humans that it's, it's the U S government. I mean, it's the destigmatization of them that now it's saying, Oh, maybe I'll try microdosing again. Yeah. Yeah. Or just the reality of, of uh, especially what Rick Doblin has done. And of course, all, all of the scientific uh, research at NYU at John Hopkins, I mean, it is making, it is changing the culture around this. It's changing the negativity. That is just a phenomenal thing. So allowing for something healthy to happen. And just to fully land that, Cal Berkeley just did a, a, a survey and they found that 61% of Americans support legal psychedelic assisted therapy uh, wow. in 2023, which is that's amazing. tremendous. Right there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we're actually working on a um, with this amazing group called Treat California, mm-hmm. uh, Jeannie mm-hmm. Fontana, uh, working mm-hmm. on this ballot proposition that would be the creation of a $6 billion um, a government agency. Uh, government-run mm-hmm. agency to to provide this kind of help because that's, you know, one of the one of the things we don't want to do is have this follow what's happened in cannabis, you For know, sure. where it, where it goes recreational uh, and um, you know not medical. The 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 path for this, uh, you know, well, in in one man's opinion, it would be <laughs> uh, would be to you know medical, yeah, and mm-hmm. uh, and and done in the in the proper ways, but. Um, yeah, it's been a, a beautiful shift in culture, and we'll see a lot coming up in this next, uh, you know, advocacy uh, cycle and with the ballot propositions. Yeah. So uh, we're kind of at the end of our little uh, chat, but there's one wonderful paragraph that I have to read from your book, Paul. Uh, and you know, this is um, again, we have to keep putting in a, the caveat that anybody who has not engaged in this way, but is feeling like some connectivity to what's been discussed here. Again, it, uh, you at the very least have, you know, if you're, if you, if you bump into Paul on the street, you know, make friends with him or a Paul, any, and Gagen or myself or anybody that has some experience and, you know, I mean, that happened to me with Ramdas. I just, com- I met him and I trusted him. And the rest of my life was like, uh, uh, you know, it's been an incredible uh, trip. Okay, here it is. Psychedelics can help address an underlying challenge of living in modern society, the lack of human con- connection. These medicines remind us to be grateful for our friends, family, and the beauty of life. They deepen our empathy and help connect us with nature, spirituality, and the universe. By reducing our egos, we can concentrate on pure creation without feeling shackled by the judgment of others. There's a lot in there, and it's all that's as true as true can get, Paul. I really appreciate it. Appreciate the book. Chat GPT, what? Come yeah. on. <laughs> that is beautiful, Paul. <laughs> this is pre-chat GPT. I'll just yeah. I'll just I'll just let you know. You, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, the book is Mastering Microdosing. They'll be in uh, Be Here Now Network uh Mind Rolling. Go there and in the show notes uh there'll be links so you make it easier and a link to Paul, you'll give us a, a a way in which people can engage with you with Third Wave, right? Yeah, we have a private community. We have a Third Wave app. If you just go to the app store, type in Third Wave, you can find the, mm-hmm. the the app. We have a lot of conversations, dialogue there, and then we have a we have a podcast ourselves, the Psychedelic Podcast uh, that we've been I've been hosting for seven years now. Mm-hmm. And if anyone's interested uh, in you know the practitioner training program, that's through the Psychedelic Coaching Institute. 
And if you just go on our main website, thethirdwave.co, you could find all of the, the mm. details there. Beautiful. Beautiful. Great contribution, man. Really appreciate Thank it. You. Really. Thank you. Thank you, Raghu. Thank, Thank you. Gogan, Thank you, guys. For making this connection. This yes, yes, yeah. That's uh, another beauty out of that incredible scene in Denver a month ago, whenever it was. Uh, this is Mind Rolling and Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and catch a bunch of incredible people, including Alan Watts, who should have been part of this conversation, uh, actually. He and Ramdas had a couple of really great trips together that Ramdas uh, <laughs> talked about. Uh, and we have a major course, Ramdas and Alan Watts, an online course in October, and you'll all hear all about it. If you sign up to ramdas.org and put your name on the uh, uh, in, in the uh, email list newsletter. Okay, thank you everybody. We'll see you next time.